Do you think that there is a process to creativity or do you basically have to approach every project that you do like you're doing a whole new thing? This is the literal question of my life. I have this dream uh, that my wife will probably laugh at me for if when she hears this, but it's like one day to get my PhD and go back to school. Like when my kids are, you know, I'm like playing with the grandkids. It's like, in the meantime, I want to get my PhD. And it's just part of it is to solve or hopefully get into this question. You just ask, like, is there a process to creativity? And I just, it's like my life's question, I would say. <laughs> um, and one of the places I have found it, it's really fascinating to me is I figured this out while I was writing a book. There's this sort of method that you do. And I think it's how everyone does any sort of creative process in almost any industry or any field, which is like the first thing is, is you have to figure out what's going on. You just sort of like turn the lights on. Right. And that's like, we, it's called discovery in law, in legal work. Like the first thing mm -hmm. is, is like you go through all discovery, you get all the evidence, you ask all the questions because there's probably some stuff hidden and people do this in marketing and they bring on a new client. They're like, it's called discovery, right? It's like, what's happening? Like what's really going on? Who's really your target audience? You probably do this when you're writing books. I do it when I'm writing books with my clients. Well, the first chapter of a book is the same. It's like, usually call out your reader in prescriptive nonfiction and you tell them like, here's the problem you're facing. And it's like, oh yeah, that's it. I'm glad somebody understands me. Mm -hmm. And it's called, it's, I call it turning the lights on. And then the second chapter, you almost always have to take a step back in prescriptive nonfiction because like the first chapter hooks them and it's like turning the lights on. And the second chapter, you have to like take a step back and like start setting the table, but nothing really seems to happen yet. You sort of ask a more sideways philosophical question or something a little more historical that seems off the beaten path. And then in chapters three and four, the book gets going and starts laying out the the like solution. And it's like, boom, 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 creative, creative, creative. So it's like this, turn the lights on, then be willing to slow it down, take a step back and then jump into it. And you know what's so fascinating? And part of the original stuff is separating, right? There's like the separation of like, what is the real problem? What's not part of this problem? What's the real issue? What's not part of this issue? And you're kind of in a separation thing. This is going to sound crazy, but I found this when I was going over the days of creation in like the, the mm. Jewish and like Judeo-Christian story. I didn't okay. mean to do that. That wasn't like a back door. I realized one day the very first thing God does, if I was in charge of, of creating the universe, I would have put the sun and the moon in first. That's what I'd have done. That's Paul Fair speaking. It's not what God right. did. He did the lights first. First uh -huh. thing, turn the lights on. So in other words, like, what are we working with? What's going on here? And uh -huh. I'm like, if God needs to see things clearly, how much more does Paul Fair need to? So I think that's like the first step of a creative process is you really have to be willing to wipe the table. And if you look at the masters of any art, whether that's engineering master or a scientist or Timmy Bauer, who's a fantastic at illustration and putting kids books together, the best of the best usually take it really slow at first. Right. Uh, I heard this story from my uh, father-in-law who talks about uh, his carpenters. Um, and he said, there's one old carpenter he has comes into every day and he just measures every single thing. And my father-in-law works in these million dollar mansions and these insane remodels. He's a, GC, he's a general contractor, but he's this one carpenter that he loves, this old guy who comes in slowly, measures every single thing in the house and does nothing the first day except measuring. It's like, okay. Then the second and sometimes third day, he said, he's just cutting all of his measurements. And he said, like literally by the third or fourth day, not one thing has been put up in the house. And he says, other mm -hmm. contractors immediately start. They like go to the living room, measure something, put something up. Go to the, the family room, put something, measure something up. Go to the bedroom, whatever. He said, the fifth, sixth, and seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth day, that carpenter destroys everyone else and how fast he puts everything up. It's like insane. Mm -hmm. He said how quick. He said he'll finish weeks ahead of everybody else, but he hasn't done anything supposedly for the first few days. And that's what I've noticed masters do. They always like 
they turn they figure out what's really going on and they separate all of the idea the good ideas from the great ideas the great ideas from the genius ones and they they do that now they push themselves forward they don't stop there and in fact you said something like this to me once which is like always try to get something done every day it get to a stopping point i think it's a really good goal i don't think we always hit it but i think it's a good goal to have mm-hmm. and and what's interesting about the second day of creation i, I didn't know this all the other day it God doesn't say it was good. Everyone thinks every single day he says, I built this and then it was good. He didn't say that hmm. on the second hmm. day. Second day, he just, he just separated things. He, he, he put the waters and the land and didn't, didn't say it was good. Just separated the waters. The hmm. third day, he says something's good once the land came up and then he built something else that was good. So the third day, he said something was good twice. So to me, that said, the first thing we have to do is turn the lights on. The second thing we have to do is often just separate stuff and just like figure out what's going on. And it's okay if nothing seems to happen for a second. But if you did it right and you were willing to live in that sort of odd space, right after that, you just pick things up and things start firing and clicking so much faster than they would have if you just started running in there trying to do stuff. And I think that's what the masters of every art I have seen do. And whenever I'm facing a problem where I keep hitting a problem in a book conceptually or I got the chapters mixed up or whatever, I've learned that it's because I didn't take an hour or a day in the front end. And if I had done that, I would have saved myself so much time and energy later. So I think the creative process is really that original, like turn the lights on really figure out what's going on, being willing to separate good ideas from great ideas and like figure all that stuff out. I don't think that's like a perfect creative process, but I think it's a really good general one that I that I tend to follow. I think this might have been the the main thing your answers to this might have been the main thing that made me want to do an interview with you in the first place. The question is in what ways do you think self-publishing, like the industry, in what ways do you think self-publishing is flawed? Uh the industry, the business model how do you think it's flawed from the perspective of authors? How do you think it's flawed from the perspective of vendors like you or me? That is such a great question. Uh, yeah, I I think there's a few different ways. I mean, man, that is such a good question to me. And maybe you did ask that, but I don't remember. Exactly <laughs> I think what we were talking was. about the downfall. We were talking about the downfall of Scribe Media. It's just in a casual conversation. Yeah. And you started riffing on how the their approach to the industry was flawed. And it like got us talking just about how self the self-publishing industry is flawed. So I don't know if that helps jog your memory on anything that you said. I don't actually remember what you said. I just remember you had a lot of unique things to say. <laughs> yeah, I think uh I think one of the ways that the whole industry is flawed from from everyone's perspective is it's really 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 difficult to write something really really good uh repeatedly. How do you scale creativity? And people mm-hmm. The reason why I think writing has this exact problem is when it comes to drawing, a, making a painting that someone wants to see, most of us cannot do that, right? Like most of us know that we cannot, maybe Timmy can, because he's an amazing artist, but Paul knows, and most people off the street knows they cannot paint a picture that anyone else would ever pay to see um, or would want to see. But in writing, we've all had to write something that was for other people to read. So because we've all had to write a blog or write an email or do a little bit of writing, we think, oh, writing a 50,000 word book, it's just what I wrote to my boss times 100. That makes sense. And I appreciate the the tenacity of people that, that think that. Um, but the, the frank truth is, is to to write a long book, it, it is it, it requires the same amount of artistic ex- expertise, in my opinion, as painting a beautiful picture for it to make it good, period. Mm-hmm. And so when people try to say, and I think this is what Scribe did, there's a canned way to do that every single time. That takes an insane high bar of creativity. I mean, you look at the Walt Disney Company and 
they have had periods where they've had success after success after success after success, and they've had decades where they couldn't put out a hit. I mean, just the last several uh, movies have been blockbuster, uh, like like they've been horrible at the block the box office. They've lost money in a lot of their last several movies, even with Pixar, and mm-hmm. they know exactly what they're doing. Because creativity is really, really hard to do on demand. And I think people just forgot that with books. And I think a lot of people, when it comes to writing, they optimize everything but the writing. They're like, and I'm not saying this is bad in general, but like this podcast, I mean, my team does it too, right? We'll take a podcast that we, when we do a podcast and then we'll make a blog out of it and we'll have someone else do the blog. We think Mm -hmm. that the writing piece of it is like not that big of a deal. Well, that's easy to do. We got the content. And what people don't understand is that writing well in a way that people want to read it is, is an art. It's very difficult. And ChatGPT is a very good example is if you zoom in, it's pretty decent most of the time. And we've taught people it's okay to be pretty decent. So the truth is, if your goal is to be 70 to 80% good, well, ChatGPT can do that every time. It's always hitting a B minus. So why do I need you? And that's a really good question. And I actually don't think people shouldn't ask it. I think we should be honest and be like, if you're competing with ChatGPT, maybe the truth is we don't need you. And you shouldn't have listened to the industry and we should stop listening to the industry when a B minus is okay every time. And I start respecting writing. This is from everybody's perspective. It's very, very difficult to do. And I think Scribe Media kind of got to this point where they thought they had it canned and figured out and they could just put creativity out on a timeline. And when you do that, you have to be very careful. I'm not saying it's impossible, but my team has a process that we follow. Uh, and we don't always hit it 100%. There's oftentimes we're late or we don't get something quite right, but we have creativity inserted at certain points where you have to be creative. Like it's literally your job to sit down and stop and be creative in this section of what you're doing and think about it totally differently and be willing to do something radically different and challenging and creative that's off book because otherwise it's very easy to say, I took a transcript, I wrote a chapter. I took a transcript, I wrote a chapter. I've noticed with your writing, I, I'm actually not sure if I've ever read a chapter of yours that doesn't start with a very interesting story. How do you figure out what kind of stories to put at the beginning of chapters? And is there ever a time where you wouldn't start with a story? It's a great question. Um, I think a story is my rule of thumb is unless you have a really good reason not to, which there are some good reasons not to. And it's a really compelling reason. Like maybe there's an amazing statistic or this thought that you want to jump out the gate with and grab the reader's attention. If you don't have a really good reason, like use the story. and I, uh, so that's what I pretty much always default to. And there are some times when I don't do that. James Carberry's book, uh, is one where I didn't do that every single chapter. There were several chapters cause it was a quick chapter book. Like some of the chapters were only one to 2000 words. That was the style of writing we were going for on purpose. And oftentimes it was more funny or made more sense to start with a quick recap. Like, okay, guys, last chapter, we talked about this, but come on, we just left you hanging. It was kind of more casual like that. And so I went a different route. I didn't always start with a story there, but 80% of the time I do. And how I find them, uh, I always ask my authors, like I, uh, as a ghostwriter, authors tend to have great networks and often have great stories. And if you can ask them to bring a great story for a specific subject and then kind of poke around or give them a jumping off point uh, and tell them, I kind of need a story that X, Y, and Z happens in the end. Do you, do you have one like that? And they're like, you know, come to think of it. And it might be one they didn't start with uh, to tell you. So I asked, asked my authors, I asked them to tap their networks. This is what Sean Canungo did. He actually posted on his, I think it was his LinkedIn. And he said, does anyone have, we need like the world's best stories for this book I have coming out. We've got a few, but does anyone have just an amazing, crazy story? And everybody in his network had like some random, amazing, insane story. There was like hmm. Sam, the banana man. There was one about the world's uh, 
most prolific pirate who was a woman, Ching Shi, that no one ever talks about. She was uh, more successful in Blackbeard. And it was like all these crazy stories. And like everyone had like this one story they had heard in their life that was amazing. And so that was a great way to get stories. Another thing I do now with the advent of ChatGPT is I, I use it frequently. And uh, I'll, it's a great starting point. I've pretty much never used ex like exactly what it spits out. But the other day, for instance, I said, I really need, I need a really good story about choke points uh, in business, but I want to use a story that has cultural significance and historical resonance. It's a true story. You have to put that in chat GPT now, cause it'll make yeah. up stories, but, but it's, a, I need a true story that talked about a choke point. And then it came up with some, and I said, no, make it more, uh, in the medieval ages. So it comes up with one. And I started there and started reading about the choke points it was describing. And I ended up with this really great story that I had to go research, but it really originated with chat GPT and about 15 minutes of research there that uh, was just a really fun story about uh, an Ottoman Sultan who took over Constantinople that had been, uh, been tried for 1200 years for someone to take it over. And finally the guy who did it, it was how he developed a choke point to take it over. So that was a really cool way that I used chat GPT and told it exactly what I wanted and kept narrowing. And then it gave me an idea and then I kind of jumped off from there. So those are some of the ways I do it. I love that you mentioned ChatGPT because it's one of the things that when I ask what's something what's something that you think is controversial in the world of ghostwriting, it's the most common answer I get is the use of AI. And I've talked to everybody from people that are like that are religious users of it um, to people that uh, that basically think that it's taking the soul out of writing. What would you say to somebody that thinks that ChatGPT takes the soul out of writing? I think there's a bigger thing going on with the whole conversation about ChatGPT. And so I like to, I kind of like to zoom out if I can for like one layer into your specific, uh, from your specific question. And that's, I remember several years ago, uh, one of my employers uh, through a series of conversations, if I kind of put all that together, basically said this, here's how you should write. And I'm like, okay. And it was, Go into Google, start typing in what somebody's asking, like uh, how to, what are the 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 five most important things about marketing? But just start typing in, a, generally speaking, on what the subject you want to write is, yeah. and then see because uh, Google will auto populate, right? Like what the most popular questions are there, and then that's how you should write is basically to answer those questions. And I remember as soon as I heard that, I was like, if I get good at that. I'll be really, really great at being second to a computer in about 10 years. I was like, I'll be the best second place computer that's ever existed. So the last thing I'm going to do is do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get good at that. There's no reason for me to get good at that. And I was totally wrong. It only took about five years. <laughs> I thought it would take 10. Um, and then the other thing that I've heard similar to that, and this has been going on since I was probably 15, was write like a third grader. You know, the old Microsoft Word would actually dock you, right? It would say like, you know, you get your flesh Kincaid grade level score at the end or a little clippy would say like, this is like 10th grade writing. You should dumb it down to third grade, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And I remember reading that and I only half committed to this. I wish I'd committed further, but I remember thinking that's really silly. We should not, writers are supposed to be leaders, not followers. That doesn't mean that you write in such a way that people can't understand you, but you should be pushing society to think differently. If you are saying, what is everyone asking and how do I answer their questions? You're by definition following. And I just co completely disagree with that. And frankly, so what's the opposite of that? Yeah, the opposite is to go about it a totally different way and say, like, here's the question you didn't know to ask, mm. like what you're really trying to get at. And this is something I, I Dan Martell does really, really well. Uh, and I learned from him and I sort of developed this method that I have, which is a good book answers all the questions your readers are looking for. It's, it gives it an eight out of 10, specifically in prescriptive nonfiction. So that's I'm not talking about fiction book, but in a nonfiction yeah. book, 
an eight out of 10 book will answer the questions that the reader picked it up for. A 10 out of 10 book will, will answer the questions that the reader really wanted to ask or that they didn't know to frame to ask or they were too scared to ask. That's what it will read their mind and say, the real problem you're having is this. You don't want to ask it because of this. Here's the psychological struggles you're having. And someone who really knows an industry or is a really good writer or thinker will know to put that, uh, will know how to deal with that problem. And then they'll also lead with writing that is very unique and different. Because what ChatGPT does really well is write at a third grade level super, super well. And I will be honest, it is better than eight out of 10 of the writers. And I'm talking professional ghostwriters that I have read. I would rather read something from ChatGPT than eight out of 10 of them um, because they've all been taught to write pretty much the same way, which is like vary your sentences with, you know, a short sentence and a long sentence, make it three sentences per paragraph. And they've explained all these rules. And when you write according to rules, um, a computer will do that better. So I think you should develop your own unique voice. Or if you're a ghostwriter working with different authors, think of something super unique and a unique voice that they have, whether that's shorter sentences or longer sentences or more flowery words. Basically, break all the rules, develop a unique voice, and don't make it exactly like people say to do it. Um, and that's in the music industry, it's the same thing. Uh, there's studio musicians who've learned to play excellent pieces of music, which is a good job to have. But the, what they're looking for when they're looking for a standout musician is someone with a unique voice, someone who sounds different than exactly the way a teacher would teach it. And that's what you have to do for all of your writers. If you're a ghostwriter and if you're a writer, you have to learn to develop something unique that doesn't sound exactly like people say. Yeah, I really like this because this is something I've been thinking about a lot. I'm writing, uh, I'm working on a project, which is going to be uh, the night, like the things that a, an author should do 90 days before they launch their book, and then what they should do in year one of their book having been launched. And it's very interesting to research those questions, because you get a lot of like canned answers to questions that an author might have the the internet basically just has like a thousand regurgitations of the same answers to the same questions but because i have the it's all based on this fundamental question i've been asking which is how does an unknown author sell thousands of copies of their book predictably and i ask this question to everybody that i interview but i have answers like experience based answers to this question as somebody who i would still consider myself an unknown author has predictably and can predictably sell thousands of copies of my book. And I wanna teach this to other authors. And it's it's very exciting how there's like a thousand regurgitations of the same answers to the same questions, but I can, I can look at them and I can go, oh, well, here are the answers that make these questions irrelevant, or here are the answer, here are the things that you can do that make it so that you automatically do all this stuff while also doing this main fundamental thing that nobody's even talking about. Or here's, you know, here's a third option that I've tried that doesn't seem to show up in any of these answers. And yeah. this, this reminds me of what you're talking about. I feel like the differentiator for the most part is like probably some combination of actual experience solving the, solving the problems. Um, and like a outside the box, which is kind of cliche to say, but outside the box thinking, um, and um, like an obsession with problem solving, like solving problems with questions, like an, an obses obsessive like desire to uh, like s solve, yeah, solve hard problems. Um, there was a question in there that I was gonna ask you. Oh, there's two questions. One of them is, what's your approach to getting your clients to do this? Or is it just that you've already chosen the correct clients in the first place? And then I was curious if you had an answer to the 
question that I asked. We could take them one at a time. Answer the first question for me. Yeah, I I think yes. I I think it's a couple. I think I have to answer them both at the same time, actually. And I think mm-hmm. it comes first if you work with an author who actually has something to say. Because if it's just like ten best practices on marketing, I'm not really sure we need that book, frankly. Like I can Google that, right? If they're like playbooks that you can find anywhere, go online and find them. Um, it, when I was working with Sean Canungo, another great, like a great example, like we had a rule, like you can't talk about Jeff Bezos, you can't talk about Steve Jobs, we're not going to talk about Google or Bill Gates. And why did we have that? Because he was talking about innovation. And so if you go to chat GPT, it's like, show me, and I've done this, I've tested it. Like I've asked it about innovation, like a thousand different ways. And no matter what, it's going to come back to Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs. And the reason why is because it's taking information that other writers have written before, who frankly were lazy and wrote about the same things over and over again. And it's just regurgitating that. And so I work with Sean specifically because I knew he would have no problem with saying, we're never going to talk about Steve Jobs. We're never going to talk about Jeff Bezos. We're never going to talk about that. And he was like, yeah, I don't want to. Let's talk about how pirates were innovative. Like, who does that? Like, let's talk about how uh, Sam the Banana Man started a fruit company. That's interesting. Um, You know, and uh, that was like super different. And so, first of all, I work with authors who are willing to do that. And then the second piece is is important. It kind of stems from the first one, but it's really, really important on how I get them to do that, which is you have to really, really push your authors. You have to remember as a ghostwriter, they're paying you for a few reasons, but the, 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 probably their biggest fears is number one, sounding stupid. And number two, sounding like everybody else. Mm. Like if you did nothing else and you didn't do those two things, no matter how good or bad your book was, if you didn't make them sound stupid and you didn't let them sound like anybody else, they would probably be like a minus, like no matter what you said. And so that you have to remind them of that frequently because while no one wants to sound like everyone else and no one wants to sound stupid, the safe thing to do is to sound like everyone else. So they start out with that desire, but then somewhere along the process, they're going to be like, Oh, this is different. This is different. I don't want to do that. Like, that's a crazy idea. Like for instance, I was working with this one author and I said, let's write letters from Santa Claus to the reader at the beginning of every chapter. Uh, And this wasn't a kid's book. This was an adult business book. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the most creative, innovative people I'd worked with. And he was like, that's so odd. And I was like, exactly. Like, that's why we should do it. Like, it's going to stand out. And he was like, I just don't know if I can do that. And <laughs> you have to remember it, right. It's, it's, it's challenging, but you have to remember, like they literally paid you to make sure they didn't sound boring and that they didn't sound dumb. And most writers will make sure they don't sound dumb, but you have to remind them, look, I am here to make you sound unique and different and do something different. And you have to let me do that. And trust me, when I say this, you want to do this. This is literally why you pay me. And the reason smart people pay other people a lot of money is not to do what they told them to do. It's to tell them what they don't know and not let yeah, them do something they shouldn't do. Hundred percent. That's why. That's right. That's right. I love that. I love that, Paul. And I think that's probably a good spot to end this interview. So, um, if writers who just heard you deliver all this awesomeness want to get more out of you, where would they go? You can go to storypress.com, and we spell story S T O R A E. Um, so storypress.com is a great place to learn more about us. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm Paul Fair the Third. Uh, if you look up Paul Fair, there's like a hundred bazillion of a super common name, but Paul Fair the Third usually limited, limits it to just me. Um, so yeah, LinkedIn or StoryPress. And you can also email me at paul at storypress.com.